0: Welcome back to Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here. Glad to see you back. And uh, we're building this community one person at a time. want to thank you so much for coming back. If you're back, you find the content interesting. And I'm quite aware that this is um, not the normal kind of a presentation that we're getting into the weeds in where culture comes from, the ideas that generate our current culture We're going back into history and looking at some academic uh, development that is seldom talked about, and it's critical, I think, that we really understand where our thinking and our actions come from because in understanding where we come from, we'll know where we are, and once we know where we are, we can start to chart a course of where we want to go. So much of what dominates our thinking and our actions is unknown to us. Uh, We have this unconscious mind, which is much bigger than our conscious mind. And we have a collective unconscious mind, which is the sum of all the human beings living on this planet. Uh, By taking that red pill, we're increasing our awareness of the thinking and the history, and the people that have formed the world in which we live. And we are then becoming very aware of the people who are forming today our future. And that's really uh, what this is about. It's about us taking a stock of where we're at, how we got here. And from a political perspective, uh, I'm constantly encouraging all of us to get involved in politics because this is how we express our will in action. Talking to each other is great. Texting each other, uh, consuming content, those are all very important community-building and educational activities. But if we really want to make the world better for ourselves and for our children, it requires the American citizen to become involved in politics. And as I've been saying, one of the raps on politics is it's unseemly. It does not feel good, and it's dominated by a lot of not-so-nice people. Not when you and I get involved. When we come into politics with a well-being center and we make truth and nonviolence the center of our politics, politics can become a well-being experience. It can become an experience where I'm actually increasing my knowledge, my emotional depth, my connection to the natural way, this is what I'm trying to create with you, a kind of politics that makes us well. Now, in our last uh, uh, podcast, our last episode, I made some commitments to you about some uh, information I was going to bring forward. We were looking at a uh, an MSNBC clip with Ali Velchi where President Jalinsky of the Ukraine was making some predictions about the future. And I said, wow that's fortune telling. Let's look at that clip again and then look at some other fortune telling because what I'm trying to highlight is the unpredictability of war. That's why as a people and as the human race, we try to stay away from war because war is relatively uncontrollable. All human activity has an element of risk and uncontrollability. But when you reach the stage of war, when you get to the point where people have drawn their swords, now we've gotten into an area where predicting the future becomes very, very difficult because, of course, you cannot predict a future beyond a point where we've never been before. We have no experience of the West, led by the United States, being in a direct proxy war with Russia of this kind, of this kind of proximity to the Russian border. We haven't been in this kind of a, a situation. So to predict the future beyond this, very difficult to do. Not good to fortune tell beyond an event that's unprecedented. So let's listen to these people, and uh, we'll uh, underscore the unpredictability of this kind of fortune telling. This first clip, please.
1: Now- During that press conference today, President Zelensky answered a number of questions about the future of this war and how he believes Russia will respond in the coming days and weeks and months, including a question that I asked Zelensky about potential threats to other former Soviet countries. Last week, the president of Poland had said that if this war is still going on one year from today, there is a real danger that an empowered Russia will invade another state.
0: Can we stop Given it there just for a second, Patrick? Have... Again, I want to underscore as I did in the last podcast, this question is not a helpful question. Velci is asking the president of the Ukraine to speculate about what might happen a year from now and how an emboldened Russia might attack other countries in Europe. This is um, in a courtroom proceeding. I don't think a question like this could be asked. And what we want from our journalists is a digging into what's going on today, questions about today, questions about yesterday, not speculation about a future that nobody really knows what's going to happen. What he's asking Zelensky to do is get into the head of Vladimir Putin, which, of course, Zelensky is going to be very happy to do. In psychology, if someone is in psychology, in a psychological setting, getting therapy, this is called fortune-telling, and it's known as a cognitive distortion. Human beings like to tell the future. The only people that can predict the future are the people that are creating those futures, and Velci's not creating it. He's asking Jelinski to speculate about it. He's not creating it. They're asking what kind of future Vladimir Putin is gonna create. This is very strange. Please continue.
2: Uh,
1: held back a Russian advance with NATO's help here in Ukraine. Is it even conceivable
0: that, that Russia could invade another state, particularly a NATO state? Unfortunately, you know yes.
2: Unfortunately, I believe it's possible and that might happen. Why? Well, I, can, I can give you an explanation. President Putin needs to demonstrate successes and victories. Can we stop, please?
0: And I said this last time, and it's worth saying again. According to the polling that is publicly available, that you can go find on Google, of the Russian people support this war and support Putin. That could be BS. I I understand that. But let's understand that Putin is in control of his country. If we're going to call him a dictator, which we do, and a strongman, which we do, and a crime boss, which we call him, let us understand he doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. His economy is doing great. He's sitting on a hundred trillion dollars of raw materials which he can extract from his country and sell. The man is wealthy, his country is wealthy. It seems as people are behind him. So he does not need to prove to anyone what he's doing or seek this kind of um, positive outcome to support himself somehow. This is just Zelensky making up a story. Please continue.
2: There there is not going to be a success uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. Stop
0: again. Here's more fortune telling. There's not going to be a success on the battlefield in Ukraine. Well, there's already been a success. Crimea used to be part of the Ukraine. It's now been annexed and is part of Russia. Russia is occupying the entire eastern segment of Ukraine and moving westward, as we're going to talk about more shortly. So there's already been a success, and that's a problem that Mr. Zelensky does not want to deal with. Can we continue that? Oh, great. Thank you, Patrick. So what I want to show you now that uh, President Zelensky has... um, told us what Putin is going to do a year from now. He could attack another NATO country, which just creates fear and the need to fight the Russians on behalf of the Ukrainians. And now he said that there's no successes on the battlefield by the Russians, which is false. Let's look at another great president, President Biden, and he's going to be telling us about how things are going to turn out in Afghanistan. Please run this one. The Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No,
1: it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well equipped as well equipped as any army in the world and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. You trust the Taliban, Mr. President. You trust the Taliban, sir. You, is that a serious question? It is absolutely a serious question. Do you trust the Taliban? Do no, you I do not. Country to the Taliban? No, I do not trust the, the Taliban. So Mr. why are you? Is the U.S. responsible for the Taliban. Mr. President, will you amplify that question, President, please? If will you amplify an your answer, concert, please? Why you don't do you trust the a, Taliban? A, it's a silly question. Do I trust the Taliban? No but I trust the capacity of the Afghan military, who is better trained, better equipped, and more re- more competent in terms of conducting war. Yes.
0: Thank you. So here's President Biden telling the American people he trusts the, the uh, Afghan army, they're better equipped, better trained, fortune telling into the future, and here's what happens.
2: The final departure of the US military after 20 years and their Taliban adversaries celebrate across Kabul. From multiple guns of all sizes and description, automatic gunfire lit up the night sky in a rolling thunder. Throughout Monday, as the evacuation from the airport continued, speculation mounted about when the U.S. would complete their withdrawal. Patrolling aircraft circled over Kabul, together with a B-52 bomber as a steady stream of transport planes lumbered off out of Afghanistan. Then soon after midnight local time, on August 31st, the day set as the deadline for the US departure, the aircraft sounds died away and as we were on air word began to spread that the final U.S. aircraft had already lifted off and was on its way home. There's an awful lot of speculation here at the moment, That uh, a lot of chatter uh, that we may be seeing finally the end of this evacuation exercise and if that is the, the case that is the end of the U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan. Soon afterwards came the official word from the U.S. Pentagon of the end of America's longest war.
0: I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans.
2: For the first time in two decades, there are no U.S. soldiers on Afghan soil, to the delight of the Taliban, many still disbelieving the pace of developments that has brought about this victory.
0: Well, there you have it. And something that we should all remember. President Zelensky gets his intelligence from a group of people. President Biden is getting his intelligence from the same group of people. Who are the group of people? It's our intelligence services. They told President Biden that the Afghan army was very capable of defending Afghanistan against the Taliban, 300,000 well-equipped Afghan fighters against a ragtag group, ragtag group, a ragtag group of 75,000 devout Muslim Taliban. And what happened? Oh, it was a surprise because war is unpredictable. The United States withdrew and the Taliban won and that Afghan army disappeared overnight. I don't know where they went. Probably a lot of them were in the Taliban from the start. That's another conversation for another day. But that same group of intelligence experts, and let's go back just for a second. I just want to take a second. This whole debacle in Afghanistan Afghanistan started in the 1970s, where this same country, then called the Soviet Union, invaded Afghanistan, and took it over and installed a pro-Soviet regime there. And boy, oh boy, there was a guy named Brzezinski who crafted a policy of opposing the Soviets by arming what was called then the Mujahideen. They weren't yet the Taliban. They called them the Mujahideen. And Mujahideen came from all over the Arab world, including guess who? Osama bin Laden and they set up camp there in Afghanistan and they were armed by the CIA with funds given to them by the US government with the most modern weaponry and they went to work on the Russians then it was the Soviet Union but it was the Russians and they expelled the Russians from Afghanistan after a long and bloody war which was funded by the U.S. government and prosecuted by the CIA in that country. So that was another proxy war between the United States and Russia. This little thing with the Russians has been going on for a long time. Every way the Russians want to move, it seems like there's a little bit of a pushback from our security services in a proxy war. So let's just remember, the people that told President Biden that Afghanistan would be defended by a 300,000-man Afghan army, it could even be the same individual person. But it's certainly that group of people is telling President Zelensky that there's no way the Russians are going to win on the battlefield. And that, my friends, is speculation. In fact, with this group of people that are involved in this, We really are not quite sure what their game is, and I'm not going to speculate. But they're telling stories that come to us, the American people. And we're asked to believe this as if it is the truth. And it is not the truth. It is a story. And it may be a story so far from the truth as to lead us astray. So we have to be very careful about that, particularly when our country, the United States of America, is engaged in a very kind of strange proxy war with lots of American citizens are fighting there. I'm going to tell you, if you go online, go to YouTube, you'll find reports of all kinds of quote-unquote ex-U.S. military mercenaries giving their stories about their experiences in the Ukraine. In fact, I read one this morning preparing for this podcast. One American ex-military, I'm not going to mention his name, said that the average Life expectancy of a Ukrainian soldier at the front in Bakhmut was four hours. That is a meat grinder. And I just think we should take a little bit of a look at what's really going on there in the eastern Ukraine. Patrick, could you play that next uh, Scene of War YouTube video, please?
2: First anniversary of Russia's invasion approaches this Friday. Fierce fighting is continuing in the east of the country. Russian forces are stepping up their assault on the city of Bakhmut, which they've been trying to capture for more than six months now. Vladimir Putin appears to be pushing for some kind of victory before this week's anniversary. Well, just look at this map. It shows the latest Russian positions there in red. Can you stop uh, that, please, Patrick, right
0: there. Can go back just a just a just a titch. I want to just get this map in here. Okay, let's take a look at this map. The red area, all the way down to the Crimea, this was all formerly part of the Ukraine polity, which was established after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Crimea is almost a hundred percent Russian. I mean, I'm talking about Russian-speaking Russian nationals. This is the Miami Beach of the Russian military. very high-end real estate, really a nice life. It's right down there on the water. And it was part of the Ukraine. And during the Obama administration during the Bush administration, the Russian Federation occupied the Crimea. And they took it, and it was they had a referendum there. And the people living in Crimea said, yes, we do not want to be Ukrainian. We would like to be with the Russians. And that's kind of baked in the cake now. And then this area north of Crimea, um, up to where Bakhmut is, this is called the Donbass region. These, These are all of the businesses and people that service the Crimean area. It's a very heavily Russian area. It has been Russian for a very long time. It was made part of the Ukraine. Okay, this is the way map, maps get drawn. These people probably, we will find out at some point soon, want to be part of Russia and not part of the Ukraine. And if you look at Bakhmut sitting there, why is that an important uh, key city? Is because the, the Russians are trying to encircle and consolidate their control of this Donbass region. This Bakhmut area is a little bit more Ukrainian. They're expelling the Ukrainians. There was formerly 70,000 people living in this city. It's down to about 5,000 people, and it is a wasteland. There's nothing left there. They're destroying it. It's brutal fighting, and the Ukrainians are trying to maintain it because what they fear is a Russian breakout. Now, what the Russians are doing is their standard... Going back to World War II, they have a very standard way of approaching warfare, which is the meat grinder strategy. They just go foot by foot with artillery, and they're just turning this place into a a wasteland. And the Ukrainians are really pressed here. There's an encirclement going on today from the north and the south. This is standard Russian military doctrine. And if Bakhmut falls... They're going to just keep moving in. They're just going to keep this program going. They're seeking to consolidate the military victories that, of course, Zelensky just said they never had. So, you know, he's lying. But what else is he going to do? If he told the truth, maybe it's going to sound a little strange. Here's the truth. The Russians are consolidating uh, facts on the ground, and the Ukrainians cannot expel the Russians from the Donbass. Why? because the Russian leadership has said to lose the Donbass would, would be a strategic defeat of the Russian Federation, and they're not going to allow that. If Ukraine, backed by the West, actually incurs into this Donbass region, the likelihood or the possibility of a tactical nuclear weapon being used will go up go up exponentially. So, this is critical that we understand this as American citizens. We need to tell our elected officials that we do not want to be supporting a war that can lead to a nuclear conflagration. As I said in the previous podcast, if you go to your Congress people online or to your senator online, they have digital submission capabilities you can send them a letter in five minutes. It's very simple. It's all electronic. And our elected representatives need to get a flood, a flood of email from our citizenry demanding an end to this war. Let's, take, let's finish this one take a little look at these scenes of war.
2: positions, they're in red, and uh, their troops advance towards Bakhmut. President Zelensky says the defence of the city would continue, but not at any cost. Our senior international correspondent, Ola has sent us this report from the outskirts of Bakhmut.
3: Nobody. Battles raging on the outskirts of Bakhmut. Ukrainian troops still defending every inch. Still fighting for every street. But the enemy is closing in. Near enough now for hand grenades. And for many casualties. He's asked if he can feel his left leg. It's okay, he replies. Then a desperate struggle to drag him out of the line of fire. Help us, he says. Ukraine may have to give up the fight in Bakhmut to save lives and resources for battles elsewhere. <inaudible> for now, there's no pullout. We joined this mortar team on the outskirts. Keeping the enemy at bay, on their section of the front line. Well, the troops are waiting now for coordinates for their second strike. The target is Russian forces in their trenches, about two kilometres away. Day after day and night after night, Ukrainian forces here are battling to hold Baphmut. Below ground, their commander Ivanko directs the strike with help from a drone. But smart weapons don't change the fact that they are outnumbered. How much longer can they stand their ground? Maybe long enough to deny President Putin a victory on Friday's anniversary. And certainly long enough for more casualties. The wounded keep coming from Bakhmut and other front lines. They could be targeted even here, so we can't reveal the location. Most of the casualties are under 30, Ukraine's future. You can prepare for the medical aspects, says Dr. Miroslav, but it's impossible to get used to the fact that young men are dying who are fighting for the freedom of this country. You can't get used to it. President Zelensky has called this the year of victory but the reality is Ukraine and its Western allies may need to be ready for a long war. Orligirin, BBC News, Eastern Ukraine.
0: Well, that's the BBC, which is the British Broadcasting Corporation. Obviously, they have an anti-Russian editorial perspective because it's England, right? And I am in no way apologizing for Vladimir Putin or the Russian war. I don't want this war. This is pure crazy. We've gone over quite a bit about how this war, uh, you know, the different stories about how this war got started. Well, from my perspective, let's just get over that now. Two sides of the story. Let's get down to cutting the cake and dividing this country up, which is what's going to have to happen if we want to avoid a nuclear war. There is no way that Russia is going to withdraw. There is no way that the West is going to get Russia out of that territory without really the chaos of a nuclear exchange. So let's avoid that. Let's, let's do what Henry Kissinger used to call real politics. The Chinese, as we went over last time, they're now advocating for peace talks. Everybody wants peace talks, but the West. In fact, Zelensky is going to go to Beijing to discuss this peace plan with President Xi. And as I've said, and I'm going to say again, when the Chinese roll in here, which is unprecedented, and bring their checkbook, that changes everything. Because they got the cold, hard cash. They can redraw the map by buying the peace And that may be their intention. Let us remember that the Russians, the Iranians, and the Chinese have an alliance that they call internally the Iron Triangle because it can never be broken. So let us remember that the Chinese are very active in here and they may see this as an opportunity to take their ideology, which is pure business, and penetrate into the Eastern European area and further dominate it economically in alliance with the russians from my perspective however they get to that peace table get there let's take a look at one more scene of war so we understand how devastating this thing is please play this patrick russia's state-owned news agency has released drone footage showing extensive damage to the ukrainian city look at that the city has seen some of the bloodiest fighting in russia's year-old invasion of its original 70,000 residents, only 5,000 remain. Russia has so far failed to capture the eastern city. On Sunday, Russian President Vladimir Putin reiterated that the West aims to eliminate Russia. Putin has repeatedly used this idea to justify Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
3: У них одна цель расквартировать бывший Советский Союз и его основную часть в Российскую Федерацию, и потом, может быть, они и примут у нас в так называемой семье цивилизованных народов.
0: He's making comments that the West wants to eliminate the Russian Federation. He's motivated for survival. It's a survival level strategy. Is there any more on this clip? Okay, thank you, Patrick. So, what I'm doing um, in every podcast is I'm devoting some time to this Ukrainian problem because until it's solved, We're on a knife's edge. You know, we're on a knife's edge anyhow. But this is the knife's edge of the knife's edge. So let's start walking these problems back one at a time. And it's also a very good um, segue into this um, uh, intellectual uh, field of inquiry about racism, uh, Spencerianism, Darwinism, Galtonianism, uh, this whole idea of social Darwinism and eugenics, which is so wound into our Western thinking, into our world's thinking, because human beings observed for thousands of years that in a war, the stronger survived. And that is a kind of self-reinforcing argument about social Darwinism. And I want to just spend a little more time thinking about this today and going into it and then relating it directly to the American experience. Because however we think about ourselves, and however we think about what it is we're thinking, our ideas come from somewhere, and oftentimes we're not aware of the ideas that are banging around in our heads. And we do things against our own best interests because we're manipulated by people who have the time, the money, and the training to actually manipulate us, the American people. We have families. We have lives. We have interests. We just want to live our lives in a way that is fun. We've been taught to seek fun. We were taught that happiness is fun. That's That's another conversation to have. Is happiness fun? But we're all pursuing whatever we think happiness is. And while we're doing that, there's other people sitting around figuring out how to lead us around like cattle to the slaughter. And I was trying to bring this to you this last time about this, um, this academic tradition that goes back really into the 1800s where we got into this kind of um, uh, British Crown-funded academic research, which uh, justified the crown's business model of colonization, which is a business. I keep saying it because it's worth saying. We got to get this right. Slavery, drugs, piracy—that was that's the business model of colonization. And they actually took and funded phenomenally famous science, social scientists, or biologists. Charles Darwin. Every one of us know about the evolution of the species, which is a Darwinian idea, which we are taught is the truth. And what it overthrew was Genesis in the Bible. Before Darwin, when people looked at the creation myth, they looked to the Bible. And Darwin said, oh, surely that's not true. I have a better idea. Listen to my story. And at the very same time he told that story, his cousin, Herbert Spencer, weaponized evolution into social Darwinism or the evolution of humanity and of human culture. And at the very same time, Galton, a contemporary of these other two, turned this into the idea of positive eugenics, That if the longest things are evolving, let's help it along, kind of like animal husbandry. So, these three pillars of the British intellectual tradition, the three pillars, they interjected into our thinking the concept of social Darwinism and eugenics. And that really changed our world. And what was it? It was a British crown, paid-for scam to justify a business model which involved the subjugation of people, the enslavement of people, the extraction of other people's wealth. That's called piracy. They were justifying it. This social Darwinist concept justified it because if I'm strong enough to take your— hey, if I'm strong enough to enslave you, that's the natural way. That's what they were saying, that the natural way is the strong dominate the weak. And then we have the Judeo-Christian tradition where the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. And that's a metaphor of the strong and the weak will coexist without slavery and piracy and drugs. We're looking for that future where we overthrow this horrifying business model which is so unwell and has led our people, the American people, has led all of us, me, has led us to a place where there's so much unwellness in our life that our society has fallen apart right before our eyes. And what we're understanding is we take the red pill. It's not an accident that society has fallen apart. As I was saying, If we have all these PhDs in all these universities, and all these PhDs in government, and they're so smart, and they're so superior to us, why is everything falling apart? There's only two conclusions one can draw. Either they're not as smart as they say they are, or as they want us to believe they are, or they're doing it on purpose. And actually, There's a lot of argument about this right in my own group of people that I'm working with politically. I got a group of people that think this is all a series of uh, unfortunate events, and I got another group of people that think this is all planned out. Well, of course, there's some of each. I'm always looking for synthesis, and here's what I believe. I believe there's a lot of people fronting as being intelligent that are dumber than dirt, and there are people who are very smart They get those very credentialized, dumber-than-dirt people in very responsible positions where they screw things up naturally. So we got both things working at once. Let's try to stay out of an either-or because it's all happening at the same time. Now, where does this all emanate from? Let's look to the source. Well, where was the source of this? This was the British intellectual tradition in their universities, Cambridge and Oxford oh, these people are respected. Spencer and Darwin and Galton, they're still respected by lots of people. And as I was saying, we had a professor here in Minnesota, a very brave guy named Misha Penn, who was my father, who in the 1960s actually went after these people in a class called Racial Thought. And as I said, he actually lost his job because he exposed the racism of the pillars of the Western intellectual tradition. He said, whoa, let's not just look at their good stuff, let's look at all their stuff. And lo and behold, they were social Darwinists and eugenicists, and we have the history in our country, which we're going to go over shortly, of what this horrifying worldview created here and continues to create. And he lost his job. They fired him for telling the truth. Now, we don't... Today, we get deplatformed. As I was walking in today, my producer Patrick told me that my, uh, subs- my previous podcast where we actually played Martin Luther King's speech, you know, he's been to the mountaintop, we actually got deplatformed in several countries because of that, like China and Myanmar, you know, really wonderfully free countries. They don't want that kind of story, so we were censored. See, now we could get fired, we could get debanked, we can get censored. In the 60s, there was no social media, so my father could not be deplatformed. They just fired him, kind of an old-fashioned means of hiding the truth. And just to say this because I love my father and I remember this, I was a young man, he fought these people. He fought them tooth and nail for years and he actually got his job back instead of going away with his tail between his legs. He fought them and he beat them. And that's my tradition. So part of politics and this was a very political act on my father's part within the university system and of course he was very involved politically generally in the society. He fought the power that sought to suppress the truth. And when the truth was made known in a constitutionally mandated judicial process, he was reinstated as a professor at the University of Minnesota, and the people that deplatformed him, which in those days was called firing, lo and behold, they all disappeared because they were irrelevant. Because when you lie to the people and the people wake up, your time is up. I want to say this again. When you lie to the people and the people take the red pill and stand up, it's your time that's up. So when you're out there lying to the people and you know who you are and you're suppressing the truth and you're suppressing the movement of the people and you're excluding the people from participation, when the people get involved, And I'm asking all of you to get involved. When the people get involved, for example, all of you who are listening can go to the, if you're not involved in politics today, go to theprecinctstrategy.com. And that website will route you to the people you need to talk to in your area so that you can take this message out politically in a political action. And I also want to ask you if you're watching, we're trying to build this. I'm getting you know, more followers every day. If you're involved in politics or you think that this, these ideas are relevant, please send this out to your friends. Share this and ask them to subscribe. Because when we look back on this years from now, and there's millions of us knowing that we were brainwashed into a social Darwinist worldview because all of us got together and exposed this. And we realized that our children and we, we, when we went to the university, we were taught this crazy ass stuff instead of a well-being culture. They taught us a survival of the fittest culture, and we believed it. Young people always believe in survival of the fittest because they're fit and young and it benefits them. Young people always have ego and pride. They're beautiful. They've never been sick. They've never seen their friends die in their arms. They've never had a round Bounce off a rock behind their head and scare the living hell out of them. They haven't been through any of those experiences. They've never been knocked down. Maybe they never had their nose broke. Lots of things. Young people are young; they don't have life experiences. As we get older, you know, I've got a young man in my life. He's so talented, this kid, that I'm I'm working with him, and uh, he's so smart and he's so musically gifted. But I can say something to him that's critical, and he will burst into tears so great is his pride and so undeveloped is his gut. That's what it is to be young. Guts aren't, they're not developed. Stomach not strong. My grandmother told me if I have a strong gut, I can handle anything. And she was right. So what I'm trying to say is when you get down the road a piece, If you start to study and you give over to searching for truth, your ego and your pride melts away. And what you're really interested in is the well-being of yourself, the well-being of your family, and the well-being of your culture. That's what we need to focus on together at this time as the American people. This whole materialist survival of the fittest thing that we've been living in since the British started colonizing places, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Germans, the Americans, You know, this whole colonization thing, this was a experiment in human consciousness that was not good for well-being. And as I said before, and I want to say it again, when you go from social Darwinism, and Darwinism precludes the existence of God or precludes a spiritual world, it's a biological view of the world, Darwinism. And you make it social Darwinism. Thank you, Mr. Spencer. And then academics like my father critique it. And over a 50-year period, we end up with from social Darwinism to social equity. We really have not changed the conversation. And I'm going to tell you why we haven't. Well, these, these academics, Spencer, Galton, Darwin, they were on the Crown's payroll hey, you know, one of the biggest industries in this country is our colleges and universities. I have to get into this because this is, this is kind of hilarious. Uh, I'm going to find this. I want to give you some good. We're going to come back to this concrete jungle in a second. I want to get into this uh, step by step. We have a trillion-dollar industry, $1.68 trillion in revenue in 2018, was spent on higher education. That's our colleges and universities. And let me give you a blast. Much like the Crown funded Spencer and Galton and Darwin, our U.S. government provides, of that trillion dollars, 40%, 40% is direct funding from the U.S. government. That's we the people. We're paying for it. But we don't broker it. The government brokers it. And let's remember what government's function is. The government takes money away from one group of people and gives it to another group of people. Let me say this again. This is what government does. Government takes the energy and creativity of one group of people, expressed as money, and gives it to another group of people. That's all it does. So in the case of the universities and colleges, $400 billion a year of our, we the people's, creativity is extracted from us and is given to colleges and universities. The government has those colleges and universities on their payroll. 40% of the action. Sounds a little reminiscent of the crown funding Oxford, doesn't it? I wonder if our government has some agendas some strings attached to that 400 billion. Well, I'm going to tell you when I spend money, I have an agenda. I vote with my money every day. I have that right on the bottom of my emails. I vote with my money every day. So do you. So do you. We all vote with our money. So when our government puts 400 billion, that's with the B. You know, a billion here a billion there pretty soon it's real money. Everett Dirksen said that in the 60s. You can look him up. He was a fantastic senator from Illinois. Anyhow, I digress. $400 billion comes with strings. Our government has an agenda. It's funding our academics no differently than the crown funded Spencer and Darwin and Galton to come up with this cover story that justified British government policy. So now we have a trillion dollar industry. $400 billion comes from our government. Do you think they might be justifying their government policy? I think it's possible. I think we need to get into it and look at it. And where is the other $600 billion coming from? Well, a very small percentage, interestingly, comes from the tuition I pay. It's the smallest piece of the action. The government is the biggest piece. You know what the next biggest piece is? Endowments and grants. Now, if I'm going to look at an endowment to, let's say, Columbia University or Harvard University, and it's for $50 million, hey, I don't have that kind of money. You don't have that kind of money. But somebody is going to make an endowment for huge money. Do you think he's got some strings attached or she's got some strings attached to that endowment? Why, of course they do. We want our children to go to universities and colleges to learn how to think critically and to investigate all the range of this human experiment we call consciousness. That's why they're there. But that's not what's happening because the funding of our professors and of our administrators comes with strings attached such that they will only Pursue and research as their money tells them to do. Because if they don't, much like my father in the 60s, they're going to lose their job. And something interesting about professors, they really need to teach. That's what they're made to do. They don't really want to go out and sell things. They don't really want to fix things. They don't really want to create things. They're teachers. So they're going to hang on to this job because I'm going to tell you about a teacher, teacher's job at the university. Four hours of class time a week, four hours of student time a week. The rest of the time go study. You know you're an academic. You're paid to study. You get summers off. This is a really good job. Those of you that have never known any academics, I grew up in an academic family, of course you can read books all day long at home smoking cigars. It's great. Fantastic. But it's not like putting in 10 hard ones or being on the edge of destruction all the time as an entrepreneur. You have become part of the priestly class of our society. That's where our priests are. We put these people up in beautiful university housing, and we give them beautiful classrooms and teaching assistants, and they live in a rarefied world where they don't have to work like a plumber. They get to work like a Ph.D., And I'm not saying it's easy to become a Ph.D., but they are priests, and they're priests on the payroll of social Darwinism. That's the point of today's podcast, because Darwin dominates all of our thinking socially and scientifically. Why do we know that? Because nobody's teaching anything about the spiritual world in our, any of our educational system. I mean, did, did your son or daughter ever come home? Or did you ever come home and the class was how to breathe? A semester on breathing? Did you ever get that one? We're going to spend the next year practicing together as a class how to breathe. Or how about centering? Did you ever have one of your kids come home and say, wow, mom, i am got the greatest class. They're going to spend four months teaching me about my center and my big toes. Did you ever hear that? Did that ever come up? It never came up, and you don't know anything about it. That's what's fantastic. There's a whole world of well-being out here that we as the American people can reclaim and rediscover, which is not being offered to us on television or uh, you know, in Hollywood or at our universities and colleges. We are so dominated by this Darwinian concept, we don't even know we're being dominated by it. And how did that come down the drain pipe? Darwin and Spencer were cousins. Darwin came up with the survival of the fittest, not in terms of that phrase. That's called marketing, Okay, Survival of the fittest is a marketing tagline. He was the one that made the observations that the strongest survive. Spencer turned it into a marketing program, survival of the fittest, and then weaponized it within the human sphere. And then Galton. Galton joined a secret society called the Masons, where he operationalized social Darwinism into an action political strategy. Sir Francis Galton, And that was eugenics. And that brought us every manner of human hell that we have experienced since 1900. These three musketeers. Now you know their names. I said we were going to call out names. Most of us know Charles Darwin. Unfortunately, some of us don't. Go look it up. I'm I'm urging you to read your source material. It's not easy. And you know what we're taught? We're taught we're not smart enough to do it. Well, I'm going to give you a blast. I'm not any smarter than you are. I know I'm not. And there's many people in my life that would you tell, they will tell you I'm a dummy because I have many, many areas of my life where I don't do very well. And that's why I always say I'll follow anybody in area, any area if they're smarter than me in that area. I got a lot of areas I'm not too good. I know it. That's the same way you are. You have areas where you have high skill and areas where you have less skill. Well, what we want to do is we want to enhance the areas where we have high skill and we want to take the areas where we're not so good and kind of soften that up so it doesn't trip us up. And what we're taught is we're not supposed to read this source material. Let's go read it on Wikipedia. Let's get the cliff notes. You know, my kids are going to university. They get cliff notes. Man, does that piss me off. All that tuition to read somebody else's rehash with their political spin of someone else's source material. we got to get down to the source material. And that's what I'm trying to do. At least I'm identifying you. Go check out Sir Francis Galton in eugenics. And why? Why, why, why do we need to know about eugenics in social Darwinism? Because it's dominated the last 125 years. This war in the Ukraine, is a perfect example of social Darwinism. If you go online on YouTube and you listen to the Ukrainians talk about the Russians, they talk about the Russians in kind of subhuman tones. You can't trust them. You can't believe a word they say. They kill women. They kill children. You know, this is kind of classic racist thinking. The Russians can't be trusted. Well, guess what? Spend some time on YouTube and you'll find, you know, I didn't put this on because I don't want to get clipped out of YouTube. But you can actually go there and find Ukrainian soldiers shooting Russian prisoners. I saw it with my own two eyes. Hurry, it'll probably be taken down soon. There's actually clips up on YouTube right now today of Ukrainian soldiers shooting Russians that are laying on their stomachs with their hands behind their heads. So, you know, this kind of war is very brutal and both sides think the other side is subhuman because if you're going to kill someone like this, it's kind of hard to think of them as a brother. You got to think of them as an animal. And that's what military training is all about. How to objectify the enemy as a subhuman. It's social Darwinism taken out onto the street in praxis and let's see who wins. And that's what we're doing here. We've got a war where the West, through its proxy, the Western Ukrainians, is fighting the Russians in a battle for survival to see who is the fittest. Oh, isn't that special? What a bunch of assholes. Did you see what was left of that town? It was a ghostland. It was a wasteland. There's no one left there in Bakhmut. 70,000 people yesterday. Today, it's just a burned-out destroyed area, 65,000 people are either dead or they evacuated. Their lives are ruined. Oh, that's so nice of us. That's so well-being. We care so much about the well-being of the people. And when I say the people, I mean the human family. Somebody at the top who's sitting in a warm kitchen this morning having his crumpets and tea with servants is saying, yeah, send some more Ukrainians out there to die. They're so brave, the brave Ukrainian people. This really pisses me off. You know what I think? I think if we really want to fight, I think all the guys my age should fight, and all the young people should stay home and watch on television. If you had to be 55 years or older to fight in a war and everybody else was out of it, there'd be no more wars. Old people, fathers, sacrifice the lives of their sons. Really nice. This social Darwinism is so deep. Yes, my son, go kill for me. No, I don't want that. And all we have to do is focus on the well being of our people to know that this is ri- ridiculous. And as we reclaim our will, our desire to live well, to live well, and we enter the political process, these people that are so willing to sit in their kitchens having their tea and crumpets and sending other young men to die, we're just they're going to become irrelevant. We're going to understand that human culture is ours and not theirs. Because we were given material pursuits and relative peace and prosperity, we've lost control. We, the American people, have lost control and insight into how our culture is working we have given control to a group of people who are darwinists and they believe that at their survival is all that matters not mine not yours they don't care about us in fact if we die it proves to them that they were right because they're insane they're totally insane they're missing as bob Marley's saying half the story has never been told in fact that's a great opportunity to play a little bob marley just to lighten up the day such a heavy topic let's listen to a little bob marley and the whalers and talk about this this wasteland that these darwinists are creating Thank you, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you so much. You know, I I uh, <laughs> I have a a two parter here where I'm mentioning my father a lot, Misha Penn, who I miss. Uh, he died in December of 2019 at an advanced age. God bless him. And I'm I'm at this moment where I'm kind of uh, remembering uh, my father, and it's very meaningful to me and I you can tell I'm a little choked up I don't speak very clearly because I realized what a great man he was and what how many decades ahead of his time he was he was a, a group of a small it was a small group of academics internationally which opened the door to even look at any of these ideas and I used to go to my dad's classes with them all the time you know I would just sit there I was 8 9 10 11 years old and of course I said my father was grooming me to be an academic uh, I ended up not a leftist, so couldn't be an academic, right? But I'd go and I, I'm rediscovering my my deep tie to this. And I remember my father would get off on these rants in these classes, and at the end he'd say, "I'm so sorry I didn't get to today's subject material. I'll get it next time." And that's how I feel today, because what today I wanted to do was to get into the, the application of social Darwinism and eugenics, in the American experience. And in the short time I have left, we're going to make that next time. So I'm going to give a a little plug for the next podcast. If you'd like to see how eugenics and social Darwinism really influenced the history of the United States and how it's influencing our thinking right now today, come back for the next episode. But the reason I'm not going to go there, I am going to go see if anybody did any PhD work on Bob Marley. When I listen to that concrete jungle, what, what comes to my mind, and I hope it comes to your mind too, those images of Bakhmut, a concrete jungle, destroyed. And Bob Marley sings, I'm not wearing chains, but I'm still in captivity. That is ahead of its time by decades and decades and decades. Of course, I I want everybody to rediscover Bob Marley because his songbook and his lyrics could not be more appropriate today to inspire us to political activism because Bob Marley was a political activist. He was very involved in politics in Jamaica, so much so that there was an assassination attempt on him, and he was actually shot and survived. Now, that's called putting it on the line, okay? He was an international political leader in the highest moment of decolonization. In his songs, his lyrics are pure poetry that will be remembered thousands of years from now if there is a humanity. That line, I'm, I am not wearing chains, but I am still in captivity. That whole song is about him longing for love, longing for a natural place that is not a concrete jungle. Dark, the darkness has covered his light. The darkness has covered the light. That's where we're living today. And those of us who have who are sensitive to this knows that over the last several years, the world has become a much darker place. Much darker. We can feel it. We can feel it when we get up in the morning. We can feel it when we go to sleep at night. We feel it when we go to the store. The world has changed. The Germans have a word for this, Weltenschwang. The outlook or the the philosophical outlook of the world has changed. The zeitgeist, another German word. The Germans were great on language. Not so great with Prussian militarism and Nazism, but when it came to philosophy, because there's another, another group of people. You know where this social Darwinism went? It went everywhere. Some people took it up more than others. Guess who took it up more than others? The people that believed that their cultures were the best. So every place we had ascended culture, and in, in you know, a hundred years ago we're talking about colonizing cultures. Germany had colonies, Italy had colonies, the United States had colonies, Britain had colonies. These countries uptook this social Darwinism maximally. And of course, There was a very strong racial component in this because these countries were ethno-nationalist countries. And if you go back 100 years, America was a much more homogeneous population of Europeans with a population of blacks that had been enslaved and then freed, much more homogeneous than it is today after decades and decades of relatively unrestricted and often illegal immigration. So these countries, these ethno-nationalist countries, love this social Darwinist idea. Now, who are the ethno-nationalists today? Well, in an effort not to get deplatformed, I'm not going to mention them because I want to stay here with you. You can figure out who the ethno-nationalists are by yourself. Who are the people that believe that their culture is the truth and my culture is a myth? I run into this all the time, talk to people from other cultures, and they look at you and you, they say, oh, you're wrong. You're st-. And then, you know, of course, and this is me now, this is very self-revisable. I will say for months, you know, what I'm hearing you say is your culture that is the truth and mine's a myth. Let's think about that. But eventually, inevitably, the word you comes out because I get pissed, because they keep triggering me and triggering me, and they start to threaten my survival. And then out of my survival impulse, I'm ready to throw down. Okay, that's the whole problem. Right there. I do it too. Push on me hard enough, and it's me and you, mano a mano. You know, that's not going to get me out of the situation I find myself. Bob Marley is singing about love. How are we going to get out of this concrete jungle? Well, I'm going to laugh and be the clown, and I'm going to give a plug. Royce White and I are going to start Hebrews soon, Hebrews soon which will be our joint podcast. And I've told Royce, I'm going to try to be as funny as possible, because believe it or not, this is such a serious you know, set of topics we're working through, I'm not very funny. But actually, I would much rather be comedic and make your day a little bit brighter, because there's so much darkness Darkness has turned our day into night. So I would like to be funny and uplifting and let you know that in my heart, I believe that there's hope. We want to hang on to our hope and our faith, which is what all of this media is intended to take. Because when we're hopeless and faithless, we're like sheep heading towards the slaughter. But when we keep our hope and our faith, We keep our belief in the well-being of all peoples, not just our people, all peoples. You know, there's this um, anti-God movement called communism, started by Karl Marx, an anti-Jew of the highest order. Communism sounds very much like community, and it's a community of people that are united along material, uh, common interest. Materialism, there's no spirituality in it. It's materialist. Darwin was a materialist. Getting a connection here? Spencer was a materialist. Getting a connection here? Galton was a materialist who operationalized materialism into a political action. Oh, really? Is Marx that different than Darwin? No. They are the same people and the same people funded them. The same money founded and funded this entire Darwinist Marxist idea. It's an idea that does not include the Judeo-Christian spiritual experience. This is the true polarity that's going on here, not social Darwinism and social equity. That's a false argument that's going to lead us to perpetual conflict. There's no way off this train. It's going to end in eugenics, which it is intended to bring about. But when we get off of that train and make the polarity Judeo-Christian experience in history and social Darwinism, that's the real uh, polarity that's working here. And it's always going to be working. It's not this, you know, this, that yin-yang symbol we showed at one time. Go look at it. it. You know, it's something that you can contemplate for a lifetime. What does that mean, that yin-yang symbol? There's so much wisdom in that picture. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. A picture is worth a thousand words. So the real polarity that I'm trying to get this conversation towards is social Darwinism and the Judeo-Christian experience. This is what's in conflict today. And just like the workers of the world want to unite around a materialist idea, let's think back to Christianity. The Christians were to preach the gospel throughout the world. Both ideologies are preaching their quote-unquote gospels to everyone in the world. And guess what? Everybody's heard it now. Everybody knows about the Judeo-Christian experience, and everybody knows about Marxism. We're all fully informed. Now, in our colleges and universities, which is the theme for the day, I think the education there is, it's ridiculously one-sided. So we send our kids off to school, and they only get half the story. Or as Bob Marley saying, half the story has never been told. Half the story has never been told. Now you see the light. Stand up for your right. See, they don't want the whole story told because if you get the whole story, you're not going to buy their program. You're going to take the red pill and say, I'm not going to swear anymore, but you know what's on my mind. No. We just have to say no. Create a boundary. We are not going to allow an ideology into our hearts and souls which runs counter to human well-being. Social Darwinism brings about a world that runs counter to human uh, well-being. Let's just say it was an experiment in human consciousness. Let's just say it was an experiment. Let's not even attribute negative intention to these people. Let's not attribute it just for a second. Let's just say it was a failed experiment. Okay, great. When you get the results of an experiment, Verge of nuclear war, $32 trillion of debt, poverty, hatred, society coming apart at the seams. When we see that, the result of the experiment, could we say, we've got the result now? It didn't work. We tried it. I've been a part of it since, well, my entire life. I've been playing this thing out and playing with it and experimenting with it and seeing if it works. It does not work. Let's say this again. This social Darwinist thing, which is being manipulated by our most senior political leaders for their benefit, and it, it goes back to the military-industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower warned us about, and the medical-industrial complex, can we see how great they're treating us? Don't want to talk about it, but let's take a look at the results. Can I get the platform for saying the truth? that life expectancy is falling for the first time in the United States? Life expectancy is falling for the first time in my lifetime here in the United States. Something's not working. I'm all for making it work. Let's make it work. Let's increase and expand our life expectancy. That's well-being. Maybe the answer to that is not found in techniques. Maybe the answer to that is found in discovering well-being what a shock i was talking about my friend uh who had that blood clot and i was afraid i sent him the uh the, well you haven't even seen this podcast yet it's coming out in a in a, in a future podcast I'm going to talk about a friend of mine that had a blood clot and when i say a friend this is a guy i was involved in training with for a long time it's not he's a friend but i mean he's a world-class athlete and a world class operative. I mean this guy is a player. And uh, he got this blood clot. Uh you know he had depended on he had depended on his society to give him to give him advice. He took the advice and he got the result. He knows and I know. There's no way a man of his well-being got a blood clot out of thin air. Just didn't happen. That, this does not happen. Okay? This guy's in supreme condition so now he has to redouble now he's ill he has to look to himself and develop a strategy to enhance and improve his well-being from the condition he finds himself and that's where we're all at all of us have a set of strengths strengths and weaknesses as regards our well-being and when we break it down into components you know the spiritual and the emotional and the physical that's kind of a scam. We're a unity. We break it down like that so we can understand ourselves. It's a taxonomy and an artificial taxonomy created for self-investigation. But when we break it down, when we only break it down to study because it's not who we are, we're a unity. We are a unity. But when we study ourselves, we see we have you know, physical strengths and weaknesses, we have emotional strengths and weaknesses, we have spiritual strengths and weaknesses. And when we engage specifically to enhance the well-being of ourselves and the people around us, we will discover that there are thousands of years old traditions that are going to give us the expertise we need to be better people and be more well people. But come on, do you think that there's any money in that? Is there any money if all the people were suddenly well? Oh, my gosh, $4 trillion on healthcare expenditures goes down to nothing or very small because people are suddenly well? Oh, no, that they're going to tell you that's not possible. Impossible. They're going to start giving you this materialist screed and this genetic screed about genetic illnesses and you know all these drugs are so necessary, and the great deliverables from science to the people, and I'm gonna say sewage it's, you know sanitary, having sewer systems, great advance. Thank you, science, for sewers. Thank you, science for food, so that we're not starving, or distribution, food distribution. Thank you. There is no doubt that science has contributed mightily to the well-being of the people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And in our thanks, and in response to our thanks, we gave them an inch, and they took a mile. Like that uh, dioxin explosion over there in Palestine. Who said we have to have those kind of chemicals in our world to kill the people? Was I at that conference? Did I have a seat at that table? No, I was raising children. But my children are raised now. Now I have a seat at the table. I'm an officer of the party. And when you notice me now, I'm not saying Democrat or Republican because it doesn't matter what party you're in. What matters is you are pursuing human well being as part of your political activity. When that becomes the focus, of your political activity both parties are going to change. We're going to create a new status quo. Right now the status quo is what? The military industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, the media educational, Hollywood industrial complex, and thus and so. We have a status quo in all of these are businesses. Businesses where a small and tiny group of people control the levers of culture for their benefit and extract wealth. That's called piracy. And they enslave us. As Bob Marley said, I'm not wearing chains, but I'm in captivity. I am not wearing chains, but I am, ca- I am in captivity. That's slavery. And the drugs are everywhere. Everywhere is a drug. Do you know bread is a drug? You know, bread is a very important foodstuff if you're in a field farming all day. If you're burning 5, six, 7,000 calories a day doing physical labor, bread is wonderful. And if you're sitting at a computer screen and you need 1,500 or 2,000 calories a day, bread is going to kill you. It's a drug. Sugar is a drug. Coffee is a drug. Tea is a drug. And we can go on and on and on and on and on. Our bodies are test tubes, and when you get sensitive to your body, you will feel the effect of every food you put in there, and that's the kind of sensitivity we want. Oh, but wait a second. We're playing video games where people are blowing each other's heads off. In digital environments, we're disconnected from our bodies. We don't even know how to walk, let alone get up off the ground, as I'm talking about. Can you get up off the ground? So when you lose your sensitivity to your body, when that feedback loop is broken, where do we go for feedback? Well, to a professional, because of course they're smarter than we are. They have a degree from a university that was paid for by the government. What a great plan. Now you know what's really interesting about this? We, the American people, are the government. We live in a constitutional republic that includes self-governance. The reason this thing is so fubar, and that's a, look it up, fubar, F-U-B-A-R. It's slang from the World War II period. Great word. Why things are so screwed up is that we, the American people, have lived in such a period of peace and prosperity that we've given up our self-governance and we've handed it over to a group of people that are Darwinists And they're clipping us out because they don't care about my well being. They care about slavery. Bob Marley, I got to say it one more time. I'm not wearing chains, but I'm still in captivity. Let's get that straight as bedrock. That's where we're at. Slavery, piracy, it's called inflation, and drugs. We've turned our life over to that business model. And in the next episode of the professor Penn podcast we're going to really delve into this thing how it plays out in america because we love our country and we've been brought up to think we have the greatest country in the world and what we really have is the british business model and the japanese business model taking over our elites and they're operating that to our detriment and i'm going to say again why do i know it just look at the ukraine if that doesn't scare you you're very disconnected from your feelings. And how do we solve that? We sit there and look at those images and feel. How do I feel when I see a city of 70,000 people reduced to a concrete jungle? There's no life there. It's a moonscape. It's destroyed. And who destroyed it? We the people destroyed it because we have sent over $100 billion dollars And that's what they tell us. It's probably way much more because they show us a little leg. You know, it's like our university system. You probably thought that your universities were paid for by your tuition. And it's a tiny fraction of what makes those universities work. It's almost all government spending and endowments and grants. Do you think those people who are doing that have any better intention than the people in Britain that funded Galton, Sir Francis Galton, a mason and a a self-proclaimed eugenicist, a person who believed that humans, the evolution of humanity, was not based on spiritual issues, but based on purely physical traits of power, power, power physical, and intellectual power. And this is called the arrogance of man. This is arrogance and pride. Let loose without borders. And is it any wonder we're living in a world today where our elites are seeking world governance? Because they have no borders. Their ambitions know no boundaries. Well-being is to know boundaries. To know what makes us well and what makes us unwell. As Clint Eastwood famously said, a man must know his limitations. It's a great clip. Go find it. Very stylish. In fact, Patrick, we're going to start with that one next week. We'll, re- we'll remember that for the next podcast. Clint Eastwood said, in a very famous movie, a man must know his limitations or his boundaries. So I wanna thank you all for joining me today. I went off on a long rant about this to set up our future podcasts where we're gonna reclaim our well-being, where we're going to reclaim our political activity, and we're gonna steward the American people into the next chapter of our consciousness experimentation where the focus is on the well-being of ourselves, of our families, and of our community. Spread this message. Send it to everybody you know. Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.